Good afternoon again from Soundbridge at Benaroya Hall in Seattle. I'm Dave Beck with listener-supported Classical King FM, your host for the series of podcast conversations with Seattle Chamber Music Society Festival artists. As the 35th season of SCMS Summer Festival events wraps up this year, we're coming to you on Friday afternoon, July 29th, 2016. We've stacked the decks a little bit with cellists as our guests for the podcast this summer, a strategy with which you will get no argument from me as a player of the instrument and admitted cello partisan. Julie Albers was raised in a string-playing household just outside of Boulder, Colorado. From an early age, she played chamber music with her sisters. She's recorded and performed string trios with violist Rebecca and violinist Laura Albers. Rebecca is also one of the SCMS artists in Seattle this summer. Julie was already soloing with the Cleveland Orchestra in her teen years, along with solo and chamber music appearances with excellent collaborators. She makes teaching an important part of her artistic life. Julie's on the faculty of the McDuffie Center for Strings at Mercer University in Georgia. In 2014, she became principal cellist of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, Minnesota, now her home base. Let's welcome Julie Alpers back to Seattle. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I love these podcasts because not only do we get to connect with music in a deeper way, but uh, I want to indulge in just some of the connections to Seattle you have even beyond the Seattle Chamber Music Society. Uh, I grew up watching a young cellist by the name of Lavena Johansson, who grew up in West Seattle, went to Roosevelt High School. She ended up in your studio in Georgia. Yes, yeah. and I, you know, at that point, I didn't know her from Seattle at all. Yeah. But I met her in Georgia, and it's been really neat because I've seen her on multiple occasions in addition to her family yeah. each each summer that I'm back in Seattle. Yeah. It's so fun to hear what she's doing with yeah. her life now. Yeah. Uh, and and um, I guess a neighbor of yours is is Leslie Shank, who, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. was the um, concertmaster for for St. Paul for for yes for several years, and she went to. Roosevelt was in the Youth Symphony here. Her mom was my first great beloved cello teacher who played in the symphony for 30 years here Amazing. in Seattle. <laughs> and um, Richard Aaron uh, taught very fine cellist and pedagogue who's been at Juilliard and the University of Michigan and was your teacher in Cleveland, right? Yes, well, I've actually, I've, I've studied with him on and off since the age of seven was when I wow. first met him. And I used to come out to Seattle with my, with my family because my parents were also music teachers. And we, whenever we were driving up to a workshop in Vancouver, we'd stop in Seattle and I'd observe lessons of his and I'd get lessons. And so, yes, my history with him goes way back in Seattle. Mm -hmm. he, he's... Uh, becoming this omnipresent character in the world of music. Uh, and there's another strange uh, connection, and I'll stop. I was actually in Europe in 1987 with the quartet that I played in for a time. I'd never been there before. I was in this sit beautiful city of Constance on the Swiss-German border, and I'm walking down the street, and I all, I all of a sudden I hear somebody calling out my name. <laughs> it's Richard Aaron, and he's biking through Europe on some sort of instrument collecting trip or, or something. Of course, so. of course, <laughs> so, why not? <laughs> he's, he's, he's truly a character, isn't he? He is, um, he is. Um, what, give me a sense of him as a, as a, as a teacher and... and he, he is the most giving of teachers I have ever encountered. I mean, I know there are many of them, but um, in my personal experience, he's just 100% dedicated to creating the most amazing cellist, musician, and human being possible. I mean, he's really, he kind of approaches from all 
sides. And I mean, he really, he really cares. Like when I was studying with him uh, in Cleveland, when I was 16, I went for um, what they call their young artist program. And that year my father got very, very ill um, with a brain tumor. And oh. Richard just really took over. I mean, he became kind of a second father to both my older sister and I who were in school there. And, you know, going back to cello stuff, he was always willing to make a million calls for me to introduce me to conductors and managers and pianists that he thought I should know. And I got lessons every day of the week for hours. And, hmm. you know, I think nowadays he's much busier because he yeah. teaches at University of Michigan and Juilliard during the year and has very full studios at both, both schools and then Aspen during the summers. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't know that he has as much time as he did right. back when I studied with him, but he's just, he's enormously dedicated and thinks there are just millions of possibilities. And mm -hmm. he's, he's one of those people that just sees them. He doesn't care what the, how to get their steps are. He just sees the possibility and he goes for it. I, I have the sense from people that have studied with him that he's very creative as, as a teacher. Can you give me a snapshot of that? Yes, unbelievably creative. Uh, I would say that his teaching style is very conceptual, that he's really focused on how you're using your body, which makes complete sense because how you use your body is what your sound is. It's going to be if you're injured or not. It's going to be you know your longevity of, uh, of time with the instrument. Uh, so every week he had you know, a new concept or 10 um, for like how to think about how to draw the bow across the string. Where exactly does it come from? I mean, I remember one lesson that we were both laying on our backs in his studio with our feet in the air and, and our cellos playing wow. with our, you know, feet in the air, laying on the back. And the dean of the school walks in and just, you know, <laughs> stop for a second and only a split second until he just started having the conversation with Richard about, you know, whatever he needed to talk to him. Or we would walk around the halls feeling the weight of our arms swinging and that that comes from the back and that wow. it's exactly the same as golfing. And, you know, it's, it's so true. He was really teaching you how to feel and balance the weight of your body in order to play in a very efficient mm -hmm. fashion. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about this in a little while, but you... Uh, your mother is an extraordinary teacher as, as well. And um, I think I saw in these little social media threads that she's retiring, is that right? Or? Wow, news travels quickly. Is it? I mean, is yes, that? Yes, this yeah. week. This, this week? week she's oh, retiring okay. after over 40 years of teaching. She's a Suzuki violin teacher. And her specialty has been starting kids. I mean, over the years... I don't know. She, she's always had studios of 50 plus kids. And she's another one of these people with just endless energy. I mean, she has the studio of 50 kids. There were four kids in my family. We each played two instruments and did everything else under the sun because she wanted us to have opportunities and to experience things. And, and the Suzuki method, for those of you who might not know so much about it, is really an incredible method because he believed that music enhanced children's lives. And that was the only purpose of the method mm -hmm. was to enhance children's lives. It was not to create musicians. Uh, I mean, you know, if they happen to become musicians, wonderful. Um, but he really saw the benefit um, to children's minds and development and motivation and self-esteem and, and all of these amazing things that will help you in every walk of life. Mm -hmm. um, so my mom is a huge believer in the method, as I, as I am as well. Um, and so she's, she's been teaching this method for all these years. Wow. 
Uh, and did she did she discover Richard, or how did how did he come? Well, Richard used to be a Suzuki teacher as mm-hmm. well, and they during the summers um, there are all these Suzuki workshops that happen all over the U.S., a, a lot in Canada. I think now they're probably spreading to more worldwide, um, and teachers just you know, you travel to each one. And so I think they were teaching with him um, in several, I, in several I think maybe in Utah first. Mm-hmm. So they met up with him and my mom just instantly recognized <laughs> that there was something very special about this because he was very young at this point, this young man with enormous amounts of energy and seeming like crazy ideas that was, he was producing incredible results with kids in really short time periods. Yeah. Well, we'll, uh, we'll unpack a little bit about how your, your, your mother and Richard and others show up in your own teaching. Uh, but we want to place a, a little bit of music. This is a recording that you did with a fellow festival artist, uh, Orion Weiss, who's in uh, Seattle this week. This recording goes back a few years. A uh, few more than a few, yes, <laughs> 2005. Yeah. yeah. How did it come together? How did you um, come to work with him? Well, we went to school together in, this, in the Young Artist Program in Cleveland. Oh, okay. So we met when we were 15, and I still remember Richard, the first day he goes, there's this incredible pianist that you're going to play in, you're going to play in piano trios with him. And I said, oh, okay. okay, you know, I had just walked in the door of CIM. I knew nothing. I, and um, it turns out that Richard was forecasting a lot of my yeah. life. Yes, I've played a lot of amazing chamber music with, with Orion. He's a very special pianist and person. Yeah. Uh, well, let's listen to a little bit of the Adagio and Allegro by uh, Robert Schumann that you did with Orion a few years back now. <laughs> What sort of memories, associations does listening to that music by Schumann bring up for you? I mean, anything from the composer himself to... I mean, Schumann is one of my absolute favorites. Um, and this piece, uh, actually the Adagio, which we, did, we, which we didn't hear right now, is like three minutes of my favorite music for mm-hmm. cello ever. I mean, I guess actually it's not for cello, but we pretend it is originally from <laughs> for horn and orchestra, um, but I think it works very beautifully on cello. Um, he just, he has a way of making the cello sing that I think very few composers have this specific language. I mean, you hear it in the cello concerto. It's just one long stretch of just unbelievably vocal mm-hmm. um, 
music. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, that's what makes uh, Schumann so special. Mm -hmm. In putting together this recording, uh, what, what were you looking for in well, to be completely honest, it wasn't 100% my decision. The label had stuff that they mm -hmm. were also looking for, um, and that was actually Rachmaninoff Sonata. Um, that was a specific request, which, of course, we were happy to abide by, specifically <laughs> you know, me, because I didn't have to play the piano part, which is notoriously difficult. Um, but he basically, he wanted kind of a smattering of different styles, of different... Um, different composers and kind of shorter, shorter works because he thought that that would be um, very good for a debut album. Yeah. So I kind of, you know, I looked around and found uh, just pieces that spoke to me, not necessarily that they had any relation to each other, um, but just pieces that I personally had a connection to. Mm -hmm. uh, Rachmaninoff, we'll start with the um, scherzo movement here and uh, then I think get into another one of your um, top five great moments for, for cello, perhaps, which is the slow movement. Um, but we'll begin here with, uh, with this, this movement of Rachmaninoff from uh, Julian Orion. What is it about the voice of the cello in the hands and imagination of Rachmaninoff that's so fulfilling and attractive for you? I think actually Rachmaninoff has a similar way with the melodies. Mm -hmm. Like um, the the slower melody that we heard where I mean, the piano's doing a lot of fast stuff, but the cello is playing a nice, slow, beautiful melody. It's just this, somehow the way that he uses the intervals that you always feel like you're reaching for something and you never quite get there yeah. and then there's a moment where it's just like a big sigh and suddenly you've <laughs> just you've arrived everybody mm -hmm. knows you've arrived mm -hmm. and I mean he creates all this this unbelievable tension and direction 
um, in the piano, and the cello really kind of rides on top in, in this work. Does, when you teach this piece, I imagine you teach it a lot, it's a, such a, a standard of the repertory, um, what do you get from your students as you're teaching it? I get a lot from my students as, I, as I'm teaching things. Um, this piece, and any piece, really, is that you, you have to think about it in such a different fashion. Um, and you have to look much deeper. Like, I wish I actually had taught this piece a million times before I recorded this. Mm. Because you start hearing things differently, and you start noticing that, oh, that phrase doesn't actually work unless you connect it to the one before in, you know, one of these several ways, or you, you just, you listen on a very, very different level. And then also teaching it, you have to really analyze everything about how, how the technique works. Because a lot of times you can't talk about music until they're understanding how to use the technique, like the beginning of, of the movement that we just heard. It's really hard to play these like very in time and very crisp. And it takes a very specific bow technique mm -hmm. that you know, I spent a lot of time working on those measures, but then teaching it, you actually kind of figure out a quicker way of getting to where where you want to go. Mm -hmm. So teaching is actually an enormously uh, helpful teaching thing for my own playing. Yeah. So you teach in Georgia at, uh, we've, we've had conversations on this podcast series before with Amy Schwartz Moretti, who's yes. your colleague. Um, just give us a snapshot of this this place. It's called the McDuffie Center for Strings in Macon, Georgia, at Mercer University. And um, um, it, 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 it sounds like a very forward-looking institution when it comes to music education. Uh, I mean, it, it's an incredible, incredible school, uh, still very new. I think this is maybe its eighth year. You would probably know better because I'm sure Amy knew. Um, but basically, the founder, Robert McDuffie, decided that there was not an institution that was actually preparing young musicians for what the music world is today, which is a very different music world than even I was coming out into when I left school. And his idea is that you have to, yes, you have to be incredible at what you do in order to make it, but you also have to be an entrepreneur. You have to really understand that there are a lot of possibilities, that nowadays very few people come out of school, take an audition, and get a job that they're going to have for the rest of their lives. Um, even, even students who form quartets in school, a lot of times I'm finding that I'm getting to the age where a lot of those quartets that have been going since school, they're starting to break up because people realize this is a really tough life. Mm -hmm. Being on the road, you know, they decide that they want to start having families or, you know, whatever, whatever reason it is, or they want something, they want something different. So Bobby's idea was to try to create a curriculum that prepares kids for not just that you're going to sit in the practice room for, you know, eight hours a day, but you're going to learn how to speak to people. You're going to learn public speaking. You're going to learn economics because it's important to understand what's going on, how that affects the arts. Um, you're going to learn contract law because you have to understand what are you looking at when you look at, say, a recording contract mm -hmm. or something like that, because I think it's really easy as musicians to say, oh, oh I'm a musician. I don't. I don't know any of that. You know, I don't. I don't do the business side of things. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, it's all. It's one. It's one thing yeah. nowadays. Um, so it's it's kind of neat in the respect that it combines not just the musical aspect, but also um, the entrepreneurial side of being a classical musician. So how does that that affect the the selection process? I mean, obviously, you're looking for 
for skilled players, but it sounds like there there has to be kind of a mindset that might be definitely uh, predisposed to go to a school like this. Definitely. I think it is a different sort of student for that reason and also the fact that it's enormously small. Um, it's 26 students total um, because it's free tuition. And so it's endowed for 26 students. Um, but I think it, it does take somebody who's willing to look at something outside the box, even in choosing a school in Macon, Georgia, instead of New York, New York, or Philadelphia, yeah. Pennsylvania, or, you know, to choose one of the, a, a conservatory type school in terms of the seriousness of the musicians, um, but to be a little bit on the outside. Right. Um, it takes trust. I mean, it takes the desire to think about things a little bit differently. I mean, it takes, I think, somebody who's really interested in being in a very tight-knit community where you support your colleagues. Mm -hmm. You have a ton of support from teachers. It's not a competitive, like, you have to go out there and, you know, make a name for yourself. At this point, it's basically trying to cultivate relationships, yeah. which you're then going to have for the rest of your life. Well, I'm, I'm very interested now. It, it started out as being a sort of self-indulgent thing, but our, our friend Lavena, this young cellist who I, you know, watched from age 12 on out in West Seattle. So when, when it was time for her to go to conservatory, where are you going? I'm going to Georgia. What's the school? I mean, and obviously at that time, it was a brand new school. And so she's gone on to study with Amit Peled and finished her graduate work at, at Peabody. So, mm -hmm. you know, th there's the, the proof of what this approach is, is putting Yeah, out. I mean, I think that Bobby's, Bobby's idea in starting, well, first of all, he's from Macon, Georgia. Um, and so there's a, a whole community component to why he wanted to create the school there is because it used to be a culturally very rich place. And nowadays it, it has not been. And so he's trying to bring arts and, mm -hmm. you know, just, just a love of a love and a desire to see this sort of thing in a community again. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's why it's in Macon, Georgia. But his, his idea is that for undergrad kids need to be very, very focused within that, yeah. you know, you need to get up to the highest level you possibly can and you need to learn all of these other skills. Then you can go to a grad school where you network, where you meet people, where you're in a big city and, you know, have a, have a ton of other things. But his idea is that if you, and, you know, this is true for some and not true for others, uh, but say you go to Juilliard, a lot of students get lost at the age of 18 going to Juilliard and suddenly they're in this enormous city in an enormous school with, you know, a, even an enormous studio. Um, and, and a lot of people don't find themselves. Mm -hmm. And so his idea is to really develop kind of self-identity in a very small, very intimate setting, and then yeah. go out with what you've, what you've created. Well, and talk about being an entrepreneur. This is the, the, the walk that he has walked, the talk or Definitely. however that, uh, he, he's, he, I remember interviewing him about this in the years that he, I think he was still conceiving of the idea. And uh, it was based in part of, on his associations with a Supreme Court justice from Macon that he used to play a series in his, um, in his chamber in, in, in D.C. And he was born and raised in Macon. And he used to say, you know, it's the, it's the Mercer School now or the McDuffie School and, and the Allman Brothers. And uh, you know, there was, he really mm -hmm. took a, a lot of regional pride in this place. And then Definitely. to be able to... Uh, seed this school here is uh, it must be hugely important to him. And I mean, he's another of these visionary people that probably, if 
he were to say, you know, in eight years, this is where we're going to be. A lot of people would say, <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you are. Uh, but it's unbelievable yeah. what he's been able to, to envision and then find the right team of people to help him yeah. create. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you speak of it uh, with such enthusiasm, as did Amy, you know, a, a couple seasons back on this series. So um, uh, it takes a lot for you to keep up that commitment because now you're in St. Paul as the principal in the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. So how, how does that work? You, you have a heck of a commute. I do. I do. Um, luckily, Delta Airlines is a hub in both um, Atlanta and Minneapolis. And after our Sunday afternoon concert, I run home and drop off my cello because I leave a cello in, in Macon, um, grab my bag and hop on a flight down there. And I usually get in around 1 a.m., 1.30. Um, and then I teach eight hours Monday and because I, I have six students and then we do a two-hour studio class and sometimes a, a chamber music coaching as well. And then I fly home, and we have Tuesday morning rehearsal. So on paper, it all fits beautifully. <laughs> um, it was an exhausting year, though, I would have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we, we wish you well as you... Thank you. Because it's, it's still a new... Um, you, you've been in St. Paul a couple, couple of years now. Just, uh, just one just year. This, this yeah, I just season. started in September. Yeah, uh, the appointment came maybe the year yes, before. But, correct. Uh, yeah. Well, let's... Um, Take a break for a little Rachmaninoff here, this beautiful slow movement from uh, Julian O'Ryan on this recording. It's interesting. This this piece has a very um, special place in the heart of the Seattle Chamber Music Society. It was um, Ron Thomas played that movement when at Toby Sachs Memorial um, uh, th about three years ago now. So I always uh, it's it's just it's such powerful music. It is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, been a part of your life and studies for a long time. The the third the the sonata. Yes, yeah. yes. I think it's you know every cellist just clamors for the opportunity to learn it. See, most of us learn it at a pretty young age mm -hmm. and then come back to it many, mm -hmm. many times. Yeah. I think Orion and I actually just played it again fairly recently. <laughs> so, you know, even together we get to come back to it, which is, which is nice. Yeah. Excellent. I want to, uh, 
talk about another chamber music partnership that um, I imagine started very early, and that is with your sisters, Laura, who's uh, associate concertmaster in San Francisco, the uh, opera orchestra there. Uh, Rebecca is here this week. She's associate principal in Minnesota. Uh, so you're in the same, you know, same, uh, same town. Um, when did the when did the Albers trio, violin, viola, and cello, first take shape? Well, it actually was not enormously early. Um, we had we had played together our entire lives, and we did family concerts because my dad was a pianist, and my mom was a violinist, and my brother, you know, went through a lot of different instruments. And uh, Becca was actually a violinist until college, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, until auditions for college, and so we didn't have a we didn't have a string trio growing up. Um, but it came about, there was one Christmas that I think Becca and I were living together in New York. I lived with both sisters in New York at different times. Um, and Laura was out visiting from San Francisco and we said, you know, we never get to see each other anymore. This is so sad. We're on opposite coasts and everybody's so busy. What if we, you know, created a string trio? We'd get to see each other. We had really no idea of the repertoire and no idea of anything. We just wanted to see each other. Um, so we went to Juilliard and checked out a lot of string trio repertoire just to see if it was something that we were interested in. And, uh, so we read and we had a blast reading. It was just so much fun to, to play together again because I'd played with Laura a ton growing up. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, with her moving to San Francisco, it was less and less. And the three of us really, as adults had never, had never really worked together. Um, so we said, wow, okay, we'd get to see each other. It's fun. Yeah, let's do it. Let's make a demo. Um, so that's kind of how we, how we got started. And that was maybe in 2008-ish. Um, it might have, I could be totally off on the years, but I think it was sometime around that. And so we decided to, to make all of the publicity stuff. And my manager took us on, which was wonderful. And we started taking my older sister's off season, um, which is like a lot of the, a lot of the spring and doing about 10 trio concerts. We decided that 10 was a good number for all of us. Um, and then, you know, as everybody's lives have kind of moved different directions, Becca got the job, I got the job, my older sister had two kids it's waned um, very much um, to the point that at this point we're not doing we're not doing much. But you know, there's always some other time that that we might come back to it. Yeah, and and for this this recording that documents that uh, time is 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 quite extraordinary. Uh, it's interesting. I was so interested to look at your repertoire list because I didn't even know that many things existed for string trio. Yeah, there's tons of string quartets by all sorts of composers, but. Um, I, I knew about the, the Beethoven trio's serenades. You're going to be doing one um, tomorrow night as the festival closes. But uh, give us a sense of the range, and because your your list had all sorts of contemporary works and um, some romantic pieces. Yeah, there is actually a wide range of repertoire for the string trio. Who knew? Um, it's just it's really not performed that much. But Beethoven wrote this this series of trios. Uh, because he was too intimidated to start on quartets uh, because, you know, he had the Haydn, he had the Mozart quartets and he said, oh, you know, there's, there's just no way I'll start, I'll start for this instrumentation. 
Um, and so that's why we have all of the Beethoven string trios. Um, so we have a lot of classical and then we have a lot of modern. Um, very few in between. Uh, there's a Fuchs string trio, which is very, very romantic sounding, um, but that's really one of the only romantic uh, trios. There's a very short Schubert trio. And, uh, you know, we have, we have little bits in the romantic area, but there are actually a lot of composers as, uh, that are living today writing string trios. And so we got to know some of them and, and got to read through at least um, a lot of music, whether, whether we performed it or not. Unfortunately, we didn't get to everything we had, but um, there's, there's a large repertoire yeah. out there. I was uh, interested that you, uh, one of the pieces you chose to record is the Bohuslav Martinu um, uh, trio. I don't know how many there are of, of this. I, I think there are two. Oh, okay, all yeah. right. But um, Martineau is, is getting a lot of play here in Seattle. Ludovic Morlot is a champion of his music with the um, Seattle Symphony. What a attracted you to his sound and style and uh, approach? Well, this was a piece that we didn't know at all. And we were just so taken by it the first time we heard it. It's so virtuosic for all three instruments. And it's really a beautiful way that he puts everything together. Like it's not for like a lot of times in string trios, um, you know, the violin has a lot of melodies, the viola takes on the second violin and viola parts. So they have a lot of double stops and a lot of awkward moving around. Um, and the cello goes between melodic and bass line. But the Martineau really treated each instrument as a solo instrument and then created these enormously dense yes. um, harmonies through kind of three melodic you know, not, it's not it's not always melodies, but you never feel like somebody's playing an accompaniment mm -hmm. or a bass line only, and you know somebody else is playing a melody. Yeah. So it was kind of his style of of working the three voices. Yeah, I think we'll get this in in both the the selections we'll hear, but uh, there's there's such um, yeah such independence. I mean, it works beautifully together, but uh, e each one of the instruments doing very different things, kind of coloristically, and and there's moments where you really get his check. Heritage. Yes. Um, so we'll, a little bit of the Martineau string trio here. Thank you. 
There's that passage at the end where I think the, the viola has this ostinato thing going, ponticello, which means close to the bridge. It's this very icy sort of sound. And then there's pits going in, maybe it's the cello yeah. part. Yeah. yeah. And then there's these harmonics on that. So there's just great stuff it's going on. such incredible textures. Yeah, absolutely. Like at that moment, you feel something. Whether you like it or you don't like it, you feel something. Um, and that's what I love about Martin You. You're yeah. never left thinking, huh. You don't get it. Like you, you feel something, and you know an opinion is is fine either way, as right. long as you're moved. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. So uh, you've kind of answered this already, but just the text. You know, talking about the word texture of three string instruments versus a string quartet. Um, what uh, what um, what challenges you or excites you about uh, about this literature when it comes just to sheer instrumentation? Mm -hmm. I, I think string trios are just as challenging as string quartets. Um, I, I did not think that before playing in a string trio. You think one less string player to have to like really <laughs> tune, one less voice of a chord. You know, it's got to be a little easier. Um, but it's not. It's actually a really hard medium um, to figure out texture. Mm -hmm. uh, because as, as you heard a very good example of in the Martineau, there are a lot of voices being played with just three instruments. So you almost have double double duty at all times. And then it all has to somehow just fit together and sound like, you know, there are many of you playing when yeah. really there are only three. Yeah. If, if, if somebody just randomly picked a piece in this, you, you'd, you'd go, is this an octet? Yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. This, is this a sext? I mean, there's so much, go, so much going on with just yes, three, three instruments. Yes, yeah. um, let's, definitely. Let's hear a little bit more of uh, this extraordinary piece for String Trio by Martineau. It just struck me just now listening to that. It's 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 like a composer like Samuel Barber who can write these 
really beautifully lyrical things and then go into these you know, very technical and thorny passages. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the Martin New Appeal. I agree, because all of a sudden it just emerges that, oh, suddenly yeah. it's a consonant soaring melody from a little chaos happening yeah, before. Exactly. <laughs> lots of dissonance and lots going on, and then all of a sudden you all emerge in the same spot to yeah. sing over the top. Yeah, that's, it's beautiful. And then again, that example of those textures there at the end, how he divides up the parts in such interesting ways. Um, it, it, you were, we were talking about um, traveling with the trio, and I, I think you said that was was Laura the the designated talker when you when you would go and perform she would she would do that we would we would all we would all rotate um but we each had our specific pieces that we were comfortable talking about yeah and so it was you know we each had to research specific pieces for each program and then yes we'd each talk during the concerts yeah yeah. well and uh, if, if you go to the website or Facebook page for the Albers Trio. Um, Laura is also kind of the documentarian. Yeah. Laura is our social media person. Yeah, yeah. well, but, but uh, you're talking about um, what, a reward, how, what a rewarding experience it was to come together and play this trio. But there's also, again, like with the Georgia commute that you described, there's, there's the logistics of three of you uh, in, the, in the trio years, you know, finding time to rehearse and record. Um, are there snapshots that come to mind for you of, of you know, uh, some of those challenges of, of playing? I mean, it, it was always a challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody was usually, two of us were away from home and, you know, trying to just do like eight hours of trio rehearsal a day, the week before concerts started, trying to get all of the repertoire, because it was, it was always a balancing act of what new repertoire we could add, because we wanted to keep learning, learning different, different pieces, but what we actually physically had time to do and to do well, because none of us wanted to get on stage and not know, mm-hmm. you know, in depth what we were doing. Um, so it was a very intense time period. I mean, rehearsals, I, I, you could probably imagine if you have siblings or family members who you've ever worked closely with, um, there are some enormous benefits and there are also some struggles that you probably don't have if you're working just with a colleague that, you know, your only interaction is for, for work. You mm-hmm. know, when you're, when you're working with sisters, you know what every sigh means and what yes. every raised eyebrow <laughs> means. And, you know, it probably goes back to when you were eight that you remember what, what that, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's, a lot of that that you actually have to learn how to work through in a very professional way. And I feel like in working together, we tried to create the most professional atmosphere, like more professional than in a professional setting. You had to overdo it. Because it was the only, it was the only way to kind of just go straight to the music and not get stuck in any sort of baggage. Um, But then on stage, our, our first performance, I still remember, was just like it was magical for all of us because there's something that you can't describe about sitting on stage, knowing two people so well, trusting them again, knowing what every breath means, knowing because there's so much uncertainty that can come with when you just meet somebody or if you see them once a year and play together. But when you've grown up as sisters, there's not that uncertainty. And so you could just feel that there were endless possibilities on stage because that comes from trust. That comes from, you know, whether you know each other or not, if you trust each other, 
then you can be open to, to new ideas right in the moment and creating something, something different than maybe what you've rehearsed. Yeah. It's interesting. So it's, it's maybe a, a mix given that you're going to be doing this literature tomorrow night in Seattle, Beethoven trio that you've worked mm -hmm. on so intensely with your sisters. Though I, I guess your collaborators this weekend are, are, are you've, you've had a chance to do some of this repertory together. Yes, actually, Beth, Aaron, and I, who are playing the Beethoven tomorrow evening, um, had the opportunity to really learn this piece together like 10 or 12 years ago uh, because we were all auditioning for Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center 2 program, and this was on the rep list. And so there were several of us who were, who were auditioning, and in order to learn it, we all just got together and read and worked with each other wow. so that we could then go into the audition and feel, feel comfortable. So it's kind of fun to go back to a piece that we learned so long ago together and haven't played together since then. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, where we all are in life now. Yeah. I want to get uh, just a couple more questions in it uh, before we wrap up here. And so you are the principal cellist of St. Paul, as you said, just finished the first season. Um, what makes that the right position for you at this time in your life and career? Well, it, there, there are a number of things, and I would have to say that I wasn't 100% sure. It wasn't necessarily a path that I had ever planned on taking, but I would have to say pretty much everything in my musical life wasn't really a path I planned on taking. I didn't even know if I was definitely going to be a musician. It was because of this Young Artist program that I decided when I was 16 that I did definitely want to go into music instead of just going back home and finishing high school and doing college um, for, for something non-music. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting how every year priorities change and life shifts and, and something different just feels right. Like I've been doing for the past many years, I mean, basically since I was 17, I've been traveling around soloing and, and doing uh, chamber music. And then I added teaching to my life uh, about six years ago now um, on a on a regular basis at a school instead of just privately. Um, and constantly I feel like I need different, different things, whether it's to stay inspired, whether it's to be happy personally, whether it's to see my husband and my dog, to feel like I have a home. Um, and it was a huge draw that Becca and, and her wife Maya are in, in St. Paul to be close to family again was, was amazing. So there were a lot of personal things that made it seem like a great possibility and then you've got the orchestra, which is, it's kind of the musician's orchestra. Mm -hmm. Everybody, every musician that I know says, oh, they're a fantastic group. Yeah. It's, it's really, um, I feel like St. Paul Chamber Orchestra is 100% about the music. Mm -hmm. That it's an incredible repertoire for chamber orchestra, and it's so flexible. Um, we play in chamber ensembles a lot. We do a lot of string orchestra stuff. We do, you know, the full kind of Beethoven size yeah. orchestra. And there's enormous repertoire and enormous flexibility in it. And one of the things that really was interesting to me was the fact that they were going pretty much conductorless starting this past year. I think we had two conductors all season. And so it really, you have control over what you're saying. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like being in an expanded quartet. Um, and that was incredibly appealing to me because it was important to me to still feel like I had a, had a voice and had a say in what I what I was doing artistically. And so it's been, it's been enormously challenging learning all this repertoire, which I've never played before every week. There's 
a huge program. And, you know, if it's unconducted, you have to know the score inside out. And um, it's been it's been something so different and inspiring and wonderful that I but it was kind of like just taking a leap. And I I had no idea if it was going to feel right or not, but. I feel very fortunate that it does feel right, um, yeah. and I'm I'm thrilled to be doing it. Which is what we've covered in this hour. It 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 seems to be very much um, the right place for you. Just uh, thinking about uh, uh, you know you know Richard Aaron uh, talking to you about what it means to be you know a whole musician. You know to take all this stuff into account, family and um, new challenges at the job. Uh, over the years, I spoke with Bobby McFerrin, who was an artistic advisor mm-hmm. for the um, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and just met a fantastic violinist. This, I'm not sure if she did this before you came, but uh, Patricia Kopachinskaya. Oh, she works did, with us. Yeah, yes. mm-hmm. yeah, this uh, Moldavian violinist who, mm-hmm. who just knocked it out of the park playing Prokofiev II Concerto here with the symphony. Oh, and, and so she's ver- playing that with us at the start of yeah, our season yeah. next year. A very forward-looking musician. So all these exciting collaborations are... Mm-hmm. Uh, um, very, we'll be we'll be watching those. So, well, uh, Julie, thank you for all the great performances over the years here in Seattle, and for the ones to come this weekend, and for uh, taking the time to speak with us this hour. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's immense yeah. pleasure for yeah, me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so let's. That brings this latest podcast collaboration between the Seattle Chamber Music Society and listener-supported Classical King FM to a close. You can find this and other programs in our series online at seattlechambermusic.org. Also, look at the King website, king.org. Thanks always to Jeremy Jolly, who produces the series, Bill Levy, our sound and post-production engineer, James Ennis, the artistic director, and Connie Cooper, the executive director of the Seattle Chamber Music Society, Seneca Garber. Thanks to him as well for his assistance. I'm Dave Beck, afternoon host at listener-supported Classical King FM in Seattle, 98.1. Thanks so much for participating. Enjoy the remainder of the festival and the summer ahead. Thank you all. (laughs) 